Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Okay, um, John chapter 5, verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and you may, that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you so much, Melissa. I appreciate it. Um, let me move this here. Thank you guys for coming. We really, really appreciate all of you. I can see that nobody wants to sit in the front row except for Brett, which is all right. Um, I have a fairly dry mouth. I don't know that anybody's been spit upon, but um, we'll see how it goes. Um, you guys can let me know. I moved a little closer. But hey, before I start, guys, I think we should, I would really like to acknowledge what's happened this week and just um, pray for the families um, who have lost loved ones just so close to us. I mean, where is that? It's, you know, within an hour of our homes that um, in San Bernardino that these people lost their lives. And it's been an extremely hard week because of that and um, because of that mass shooting. And it's, and it's wild how easy it is to say the latest mass shooting, you know, like that just rolls off your tongue and it just goes to show what kind of a world we live in. And in the wake of all this, I don't know if you guys saw the New York Daily News' cover. The New York Daily News' cover was in response to a lot of people saying, like, hey, we're praying for the families, and, you know, we're wishing you well, and we're praying about this. And in the cover of the New York Daily News says, God isn't fixing this, was the cover of it, in big letters with a whole bunch of pictures of different politicians tweeting that they're praying and stuff. And, um, and, and people came up with the term of, like, prayer shaming, you know, so if things like this happen and the first thing you do is say, I'll pray for you, that somehow you should be shamed for that because somehow that doesn't do anything. And um, it just shows the world we live in, the polarization. I don't think a lot of people uh, go with what the New York Daily News put. I think even a lot of people that normally read them would think that's a little over the line because, you know, this is what people do. Even people that don't have a particular faith do when they have tragedies and things like that, as they say, I'll pray for you. It's the most natural human thing to do. But one of the things that I thought about with that is um, the idea is that somehow what we're doing in here and what we're talking about in here and as we pray and as we read the word and as we're thinking about Jesus and stuff, that somehow it doesn't have anything to do with real world problems. That somehow there's the world out there of real problems and you need to solve those by your own effort. But when we talk about Jesus and we pray and we do all these things, that doesn't have any influence over this. And I just want to remind you guys that God is going to fix this. Okay, that he is about fixing us. And that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about that God sent his own son into the world on a rescue mission. And that by his cross and resurrection, he is going to restore the world. It isn't that the, the gospel isn't the good news that somehow we're all going to be kind of just jetted out of here to some heavenly realm. And the place is just going to burn up in flames. The gospel actually talks about him coming, resurrecting our bodies, restoring this world and making it all new. Guys, at some point, and it could be very soon, his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what Christmas is about. So I don't want you guys, you know, when you're thinking about all of this to, to buy into that line that somehow Christmas and Jesus and the things we're talking about in prayer have nothing to do with real world problems. It's the only solution. <laughs> you know, if God isn't going to fix this, it's not getting fixed. <laughs> I don't know what exactly they had as an alternative. But guys, let's pray for those families and let's pray just for our nation right now. Father, we come before you with uh, heavy hearts, um, just seeing on social media and talking to others and, and of the, what this has done to our hearts, Lord. We um, would like to, first of all, 
just desperately ask that you would comfort the families, the friends, the co-workers, um, the, the, the people that knew these people that lost their lives. We pray, Lord, that they would find their hope in your son. Um, we pray, Lord, too, for our nation, just for safety and for justice, Lord. Um, we also want to pray, toward, Lord, too, for those um, of the Muslim faith that live in our nation that could perhaps be uh, persecuted in terrible ways because of this or find themselves uh, hated when they have nothing to do with it. Lord, we pray that you would bless them. We pray, Lord, that they would find their hope in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as a church that we'd be equipped to offer the gospel to all people in our community. Lord, it is the gospel only that will solve this problem, that will fix this world. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be equipped to communicate that, Lord. We have to believe that people in our community are ready to hear some real hope. And so we pray during this Christmas season you would equip us. We love you, Lord. We're so thankful. I was just thinking this morning, you know, on my drive here, that I get to talk about Jesus. What a privilege. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred by what we see in this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So you guys saw last week, um, David uh, preached an awesome message on how Jesus healed that paralytic man. Remember that? So this guy was paralyzed. He was paralyzed for how long? 38 years. 38 years. I mean, a really lot longer than most of you have been alive, 38 years. And, and the response, though, of the religious leaders, if you look at verse 10, is heartbreaking. So here's a guy that has not been able to stand up and walk for 38 years. They see him walking, and they know who he is. It's not like, you know, they don't know this man. They see him, and what's their response? These are the guys that have been called to love and lead God's people. And this is their response to this man that's walking for the first time in 38 years. Look at verse 10. So the Jewish leader said to the man who was healed, It's the Sabbath. Really? It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your mat. There's no like, dude, you're walking. Wow. Like, how did this happen? Praise God. No. You're carrying a mat. No compassion for this man. And these particular people who are the religious leaders of the day are actually going to be happy to kill Jesus by the end of this conversation. And I think one thing I want to show you from the very beginning is that I want to show you how, I want you to see from this text how blind and inhumane religion can make us. Beware. <laughs> beware. You could be the person in the room that knows this book better than anyone and be like these guys. Just beware. You know, religion can make us blind. Religion can make us inhumane. That's certainly what it did here. And so this man's confronted about how he's carrying a mat after he's healed after 38 years of being paralyzed. And he says, oh, it was Jesus that told me to do it. Okay, so then they go to Jesus and they ask him about and they charge Jesus with breaking the Sabbath. Now, there's a law in the Old Testament about how one out of every seven days is a day you're not to work on. It's a day of rest. And look at how Jesus responds, because Jesus could have responded a couple different ways. Right. He could have said, well, you know, the Old Testament never says you can't carry a mat after you've been paralyzed for 38 years. Right. I mean, that was something they had added to their oral tradition. That's not something you'll find in here. He could have just done that, right? But that's not what he does. He does something far more dangerous to himself. The response that he gives here, he wants to not just confront their view of the Sabbath. He wants to confront their view of him. And so this is what he says. Take a look at it. Verse 17. But Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. Okay, what's he saying here? Well, in that time, there was a debate on whether God worked on the Sabbath. Okay, yeah, rabbis could debate anything. So they're debating whether God works on the Sabbath, and they kind of came to the consensus that he must work on the Sabbath because the world keeps working. 
you know? And if God were to take a break, it'd be a disaster. So God does work on the Sabbath, but he's exempt to the rule of the Sabbath. Seems reasonable, right? And so Jesus is answering in that context. And so what Jesus is basically saying is, they say, you're working on the Sabbath. And he says, well, if God can work on the Sabbath and he's exempt, so am I. Whoa, okay? Whoa, you could imagine them going, yeah, but you're not, oh, you think you are God. Look at their response in verse 18. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, that was bad enough, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What Jesus says here is super shocking, but it's even more shocking in the first century. Because in our time, it's very common for people to kind of blur the distinction between God and man, God and humans. You look at kind of the New Age movement, a lot of those spiritualities, they talk about how you need to kind of figure out that, you know, you have the divine in you. You are, you are in a way, God. There was a, a book a while back called The Secret. You guys remember that? It was a big deal many years ago. And, um, and, and through that book, you read through the book, and then you find out at the end, spoiler alert, you find out at the end that what you really need to know, the real secret you need to know, is that you are God. And somehow that's supposed to help your life. I could just imagine what that does for marriages, if both of them think they're God. You know, I don't think this does good things. Um, But that's a very common thing in our time. But in the first century Jewish context, you don't do that. It's very clear that there's a distinction between God and us humans. God is holy. He's set apart. He's distinct. We don't talk about us being equal with him. Um, Isaiah 45, verse 5 says, God says in it, I am the Lord, there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. There is no other God. I am the Lord, there is no other. Very clear, right? And so when Jesus comes and he makes a claim to be equal with God, to them it's not only impossible, but it's evil. And it's something that they want to stop by killing him. Um, Now, as much as Jesus wants to make clear here that he's equal with God, one of the other things he wants to make really clear is that he's not somehow a a God in competition with God the Father, or that he's a separate God, as if there's two gods now, or three gods. He wants to make clear that, that he lives in a dependent relationship with the Father. Look at verse 19. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. He only does what he sees the Father doing. And the Father... Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So God the Son lives in unified, dependent relationship with God the Father. And it's passages like this and many others that have made Christians from the very beginning believe in something called the Trinity. Um, The Trinity being that there is one God who's eternally existed as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So one God, three persons. And Christians have, have believed this from the very beginning because the Bible clearly teaches some things that there's no other way to reconcile. And if you guys are taking notes or maybe you want to take notes for the first time, um, there's three things the Bible teaches that, that the Trinity resolves. It teaches, number one, that there's only one God. It teaches, number two, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, not people, but persons. They have mind, will, emotions, and they can have a real relationship with each other. And then finally, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God. If you believe those three things, if you believe there's only one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, does they have a real relationship? So, for example, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he's really praying to someone besides himself, right? He's praying to the Father. Or um, at the baptism, you remember how Jesus went under the water and he comes up and you remember the Holy Spirit came upon him and then the Father said something from the sky, right? He said, this is my beloved Son. That's not ventriloquism, 
Okay, that's not Jesus going, this is my son. You know, he's not doing that. These are three persons in relationship with each other. So if you believe all those things and you believe Jesus is God, the Trinity turns out to be the only way that you can have those three things and hold them together. So we didn't just make it up out of nowhere. This is something the Bible itself teaches. One God, three persons. Greg Kokel says that it's like there's one what, one God, and three who's, three persons. Does that help you at all? One what and three who's? When I heard it, I was like, oh, that's great. And then I said to the other people, and they're like, no. <laughs> so one what and three who's. So the one true God, this God of the Bible, is not, he's not a solitary being. He's not, um, he's, he's not a being all by himself. He is three persons in relationship throughout all eternity, and yet one God. And so before creation, God was not lonely. He was not bored. You guys ever wondered that before? Like, so he created the world, and before that, there was no world, and there was no stuff, and there was no us. How did he make it without us? You know, have you ever thought that before? You know, he's sitting alone in the dark, just waiting to create you, you know? Um, that somehow, you know, God's just, you know, he had this, he's feel bad for him, right? You know, what did he do before me? It's like Tom Petty, right? Tom Petty song, you, you got lucky, babe, when I found you. You know, like we feel that with God, you know, like now you have something to do. Now you have someone to love. No, God was not bored or lonely or anything like that because we're not better uh, company the rest of the Trinity is, by the way, okay? You're not better company than Jesus to the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit to the Father, right? Community of love for all eternity. And so what's going on in this passage is really is that Jesus' relationship with the Father is being questioned and listened to. And what it does is it gives us a really cool opportunity, a really great opportunity to kind of look into the relationship between the Father and the Son. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see what that relationship's like between the Father and the Son. You say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Later in John, we'll see the Holy Spirit. Firstly, though, let's look at this. The Father shares himself with the Son. Take a look at verse 19. It says, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you'll marvel. There's a really beautiful image here, guys. This whole image of the Son watching the Father and doing everything he sees him doing. In the first century, that's the way sons would have learned their occupation. They would have learned from their father. Some of you guys are younger and you're kind of trying to decide, like, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to be or whatever? They didn't do that in the first century. Be like, I don't know what I'm going to be. What's your dad do? Carpenter. Okay, that's what you're doing. Like, stop stressing, you know? It was real simple. And Jesus would have learned from his stepfather, Joseph, carpentry, right? He would have learned by watching him. He would watch everything he did and he would copy it. That's the image here. And today, kids learn from us too, right? They might not learn their occupation, but they learn how to be good husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and friends and disciples of Jesus by watching us. They're always watching. You guys have heard, you know, it's, a lot of these things are more caught than taught. These little people are like spies. <laughs> and they're watching and they're taking notes and they're copying us. No pressure. Okay? No pressure. Um, but that's the image here is that Jesus is, is, is um, learning from his father. He says, for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him everything that he's doing. Very early in Jesus' life, he started to learn by watching his true father, God. Guys, remember in Luke 2, when um, the the family goes to to celebrate in Jerusalem, and they leave Jesus behind, right? They thought he was with other people and all this stuff, right? And when they finally find him, in Luke 2, it says, the parents found Jesus 
And they were astonished. And Jesus' mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have searched everywhere in great distress for you. And they find him in the temple. And he says, and, and, um, and he said to them, Why are you looking at me? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? You know, he's saying, he's like, Mom, you remember he's not really my dad, right? Like the whole virgin birth thing. You were there, you know? And then he's saying, I need to be learning my father's business. I need to be here in the temple and I'm learning to follow him. So even at a young age, he was doing what's in this verse. And it says in verse 20, Jesus says that the father shows his love. How? By showing himself to him. The father is letting the son in on everything that he does. And then the son, in response, loves the father by copying him, living a life that mirrors the father, and displaying him and glorifying him in the world. Isn't that cool? So the father loves the son by showing him his life. The son loves the father by copying him and showing him to the world, glorifying him as an apprentice. And Jesus did this perfectly, right? And so later on, when Philip asks in John 14, Philip goes, hey, you know what? All we need, just show us the Father. What does Jesus say back to him? He says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know who I am, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He has said, You've, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and he is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. He perfectly copied and was an apprentice of the Father. So the Father shows his love for the Son by showing his life to him. The Son responds by copying him and glorifying him to the world and showing us all who who God really is. When we look at Jesus, we see who God is. So secondly, the Father has given the Son resurrection power. So he displays his life to to the Son, and he also gives him resurrection power. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. And then drop down to verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted that the Son also would have life in himself. This is a huge claim that Jesus is making because as you look through the Old Testament, God alone has the power to raise the dead. God alone has the power to give life. And then in verse 26, he says, the father, the way he has life in himself has given the son the ability to have life in himself. What does that mean? Well, we don't have life in ourselves, okay? We don't have our own source of life, okay? Our life is given to us by God. It's um, derived from God. It's taken away by God. And what the father has, though, is he has life in himself. He can give life to people. He, has, he doesn't get his life from outside of himself. And what it says here is that the, he's given the son the same honor. He's given the son the honor of being able to raise the dead. And that's the way the Trinity works, because you have this really amazing relationship where you have the father who's clearly leading and has authority over the son, and the son is listening to the father, but then you have this whole honoring one another and loving one another, and there's unity between them. So there's no competition. Um, There's a mutual equality and honoring. And so Jesus has been given this power. Guys, Jesus has the power to molecularly reassemble a human body and give all of its cells life again. Isn't that amazing? I mean, talk about a power. It's amazing. We get a foretaste of this in John 11, right? When Lazarus is dead and, and Jesus... Doesn't waits to come back to make sure he's really dead, not mostly dead. Okay, three days dead, and he comes, and it says in John eleven, it says Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Lazarus, come forth!" And you know what happened? 
Lazarus' dead body had to listen to that and come back to life. Not a ghost, not a zombie, okay? This is in The Walking Dead. This is real life, totally brought back to life. And guys, it was a really good thing that Jesus was specific. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, right? Because if you look at verse 25, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and all those who hear will live. It's a very good thing he was specific. There could have been a huge crowd, right? He could have, like, cleared out that whole graveyard. And you know what, guys? One day he will. One day he will. That's power. And this is, guys, this is the power his people hope in. This is the power we hope in. In a week like this, you know, we hope in this. This isn't the only life we get because I've just been thinking like, not just because of this week, but just in general, I've just been thinking a lot about um, life is fleeting, right? It's fragile. It's delicate. Like James talks about it's a mist. You see, have a little mist and just the wind blow by, it's gone, you know? Our lives are like that. You know, when we're younger, we think we got forever, you know? And then as you get older, you start to think like, this is fleeting. I could lose this at any moment. I could lose this today. You know, and Jesus Christ, though, he has resurrection power and he's going to use it. And one day he is going to raise all of his people and he's going to set this world right. Like I was talking about earlier, he will physically renew this world and we will populate this world as resurrected people with Jesus forever. I mean, this isn't your only run. And so some of you here might have like severe bodily things that you just go like, I feel gypped. I feel like I didn't get the body I should have gotten. Whether it's outside, you know, your physical body, or it's inside that you just have things inside that don't work right. And you're like, the inside of my body, my chemically, my brain, whatever, it's not working right. I feel like I've been ripped off. You haven't been ripped off. This is just the real quick kind of appetizer run we get. You know, we're going to live forever in physical bodies in a, in a resurrected world. And so our, his people hope in it. You know what else too, though, guys? His enemies should fear this power. I, I was just thinking about this week. Like, God's enemies should fear that Jesus has the power to resurrect. Take a look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that's what I was just focusing on. But look at the second half. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You can't escape God's judgment through death. You think about like just lately, very common, people commit heinous crimes and then what do they do? Kill themselves or get killed in in the line of it. And we think, man, we wish they were still alive so we could punish them. They don't escape. There is a resurrection of judgment. And I was just thinking about like how amazing that Jesus is the kind of judge, like you kill yourself, you don't get away. He just raise you, raise you and judge you. And so guys, no one escapes the judgment. And that's helpful for us to hear, guys, because there's a lot of emotion, right? And to know that God's a just judge, he's going to take care of this, and that no one escapes is a comfort. Should be. Okay, thirdly, so he's given the son resurrection uh, power. He's also given authority to judge, which is kind of already what I was going into. But look at verse 22. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. We're coming back to that. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Now, what he's saying here is he's saying that, that God the father has given the honor of judging all people to the son. He doesn't do it himself. He's given it to the son. And you guys who are thinking about it, you're like, well, I thought back in chapter three, it said that Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world. We didn't the first time. First time he came into the world, not to judge it, but to save it. 
But there is a second coming, and when he comes, he comes to judge. And, and that has been given by his father. And I was just thinking about this whole idea of judgment, guys. If this world needs to be judged, and it does, right? Somebody needs to. Somebody needs to go over human history and sort this out. It can't be left the way it is, right? This is not a satisfying ending. He has to judge. Somebody has to judge. Who better to judge all of humanity than Jesus? Like if somebody's got to judge this place and all these people, who would be better? You guys have a better option? He's the best possible option. I was just thinking like, I trust Jesus with that. You know, and I have all kinds of mixed emotions and and am disturbed about the idea of judgment and all these things. But you know what? The right person is judging, and it's Jesus. He will judge all people. And look at why the Father gives the Son authority to judge. Look at verse twenty-two. The Father judges no one, but has given all authority to judge to the Son. Listen to this. Why? That all may honor the Son. What? Just as the honor of the Father. That's intense if you really think about it. So some people might say, you know, Jesus never meant to say he was God. He never said he was God. You know, these Christians that just kind of wound up about him, really liked him a lot, started talking about him being God. But there's no real proof that he thought he was God or that he meant to be called God. Read it again. It says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Father. See, the Father wants the Son to be honored by everyone. How? Just as they honor the Father. The Father wants the Son honored the way God's honored. Isn't that intense? Jesus has a very high view of himself. Would you say? In theology, we call it a Christology, right? Jesus has a very high Christology. <laughs> he has a very high view of himself. What he's saying here is that God wants him honored just like God. And that's why, guys, we can't say that all religions basically worship the same God. We all want to say that somehow, you know, we're all worshiping the Father, you know, and it's just different ways and it's, you know, adorable. Look at how we all do it different, okay? But look at what Jesus says here. He says that the Father wants the Son honored just like the Father. And then he says, whoever does not honor the Father in this way does not honor the Son. And so we can't say that. Fourthly, the Father has made Jesus the Savior of the world. Take a look at verse 24. This is great. And so um, verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, this is Jesus speaking, and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into the judgment because he has passed from death to life. The, the Father loves the Son by revealing himself to him. The Son loves the Father by, by copying him and displaying him to the world and by becoming the Savior of the world. And so um, what you can see here in verse 29 is, he, remember in verse 29, it might have disturbed you. You looked at verse 29 and it said, um, those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life and those who have done, done evil will go to the resurrection of judgment. You might have thought to yourself, okay, but how good? You ever wonder that? Like, how would I know? How would I know if I'm good enough? Or how would I know what's so bad that I would get the resurrection of judgment? Um, how can I be sure? Well, Jesus in verse 24 makes it very clear. He says, you know who has eternal life? Those who believe my word, who hear me and believe me. He says, has eternal life. And he says, has passed from death to life. Did you guys know that you can just bypass the judgment? That's what this verse says. And so on the final day, there's the great white throne. There's a line of people to be judged. 
And what Jesus is saying is that there's this, like, other line that goes around it. You guys realize that? Look what he says. He says, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. You realize you cannot come into judgment? You realize there's a way to avoid judgment? How can we do this? It says by believing. How can this be? On the cross, Jesus Christ went to judgment so that you never have to. On the cross, Jesus Christ went to judgment so you'll never have to. Guys, and the gospel, as opposed to all religions, the gospel is the only way that you can be sure ahead of time that you pass the judgment. You guys realize this. If you want to just simplify things, all religions basically say, here are the commands. Good luck. We'll see how you do. Well, you know, what's the verdict going to be? Well, we'll have to see at the judgment, right? Only in the gospel can you know that Jesus has already been judged in your place and that you've already left the courthouse acquitted. How does that feel? Believe, yeah, it feels really good to know that you've already been acquitted. The judgment's already been rendered. It was rendered on Jesus. And if you'll trust in him and turn from your sin, you can know that. And I just think, guys, as believers, you need to savor that. You need to think, I won't come into judgment. I won't come into judgment. I've already passed from death to life. That's the good news. Now, what follows at the end of this is some proof. Because I just gave you really good news, and you guys, would you guys all agree that's good news? See, that's the cool thing about doing this, is like when I come up here and talk about Jesus and the gospel, I get to give you like really, really good news. Like there's not like, this isn't a bummer, okay, at all. And I just feel really bad for the people that have to preach something else. You know, it's like, well, we'll see. Well, that's a great sermon, guys. You know, like, here's the commands, we'll see. No one knows where, whether they're going to be saved or not. We'll just have to wait till the end. Do you want to hold on and wait for something like that? I mean, I don't even like it when I know my wife's not cool with me. And I say, hey, what's going on? She goes, oh, I'll tell you later. <laughs> like, I can't even handle that. I'm certainly not going to want to wait till the final judgment to know what's going to happen to me. Right? It's crazy. And yet he says, you can pass from death to life. You could have the judgment already passed and know that you're right with God. Well, what's the proof? Right? What's the proof? Because that, that's good news only if it's true. Well, verses 30 through 47, Jesus gives proof. And he gives actually three different witnesses to himself, but we're only going to talk about two of them because of time. And the two witnesses are these. There's the witness of his works, of Jesus' works or his miracles, and there's the witness of the word. Okay? He gives proof for what he's saying. He's saying, I'm giving you good news, and there's a way to know it's true, and it's by my works, my miracles, and the word. Firstly, the works. Take a look at verse 36. For the works are miracles that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' works or his miracles validate his claim. Because you could be just thinking, you know, Jesus was a, you know, just a man. He was a wonderful man, a wise man, but just a man. But here's something you've got to explain, okay? If you believe Jesus was just a man, you have to explain how Christianity gets started. And realize that it got started in the most hostile environment possible, which would be a fiercely monotheist culture. What I mean by that is they couldn't believe that a man was God. Okay? We just saw they want to kill him for saying that. And so somehow you got to explain how a whole bunch of Jews went, you know what? I think I will worship a man as God and I'm willing to die for it. Something happened. Okay? Something had to happen. And what he says here is that um, his signs were the way he got a following. 
When we look through all four Gospels, we find that the reason why Jesus was able to get a following and why people started to follow him in a culture that was diametrically opposed to everything he was saying is his miracles. Verse 36 says that his, his works bear witness about him. Right? And there was one particular miracle, right? One particular miracle that he did that even caused first century Jews, the least likely people to believe that a man would be God, to believe that he was God. You know what it was? The resurrection. It was the resurrection, right? That in 33 AD, he dies on a Roman cross. He's very dead. They even poke him in the heart to make sure he's dead. Romans knew how to do these things. And then three days later, what did he do? He came back to molecular life. Okay, his body came back to life. And he didn't just appear and stuff like that. He walked around, they handled him for 40 days. And that's how we can know that this is no fairy tale and that God is going to fix this place. We know by the resurrection. So it's by his works. It's also by the word. Take a look at verse 37. Here's the other proof he gives, the word. Verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. So how? His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, which would be very offensive to these religious leaders because that's what they were all about. He's like, nope, you don't have his word in you. And then listen to what he says to these religious leaders. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it's these that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you'd have life. What's he saying? The Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, prove Jesus' claims. Okay, He fits them perfectly. Because if you're going to choose to believe that Jesus was just a man, you're going to have to explain somehow that the whole Old Testament that was written over thousands of years by dozens of authors fits Jesus like a glove. Tight. Fits him perfectly. You're going to have to explain things like there's specific promises, guys, or specific um, prophecies about him. Like, like Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is great. A thousand years before Jesus came, there's Psalm 22, which talks very specifically about a Messiah coming and having his hands and feet pierced. Okay, how do you arrange that? Why would you want to arrange that? Okay? Because you can think like, okay, so he knew about that and he, he intentionally got himself crucified. Does people do that? I don't think so. And for what purpose if he's not God? You know what I mean? And then it even says in Psalm 22 that they cast lots for his clothes. And it even gives specific lines that people mocked him with. So that when people were mocking him on the cross, they were actually quoting scripture out. Talk about creepy if you were there. You're like, this is it, you know? (laughs) Isaiah 53, this is 700 years before Jesus. It talks about how the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and that his wounds would heal us. It talks about how he would be the victim of oppression and that he would go to the, sla- to the slaughter with his mouth, not opening his mouth, so he'd be quiet about it. And that was one of the things that Pilate said, hey, I can get you out of this. Why aren't you talking to me, right? He fulfilled that. It even says, guys, 700 years before he came, that the Messiah would be condemned with criminals but would end up buried in a rich man's tomb. How do you arrange that? You don't arrange that. And there's countless of these guys. And then the cool thing, too, is that aside from, like, very specific prophecies, you have just, like, that the Bible just fits him. The Old Testament just fits him. Let me give you some examples. Jesus is the greater Adam who passed the test that the first Adam failed, right? 
Jesus is the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3 that will crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the better Abel, whose blood also cries out from the ground, but not for our judgment, but for our forgiveness. He's actually the true ark who saves us from the judgment flood. He is the promised seed of Abraham, through whom the nations will be blessed. Jesus is the ultimate Isaac, was sacrificed by his father to save us. He's the better Bethel, the true stairway to heaven. He's the ultimate Joseph, who endured injustice to spare the lives of his brothers. He is the prophet greater than Moses. Jesus is the great I am that spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Jesus is even, it says, the rock that was struck in the wilderness to give his people water and refreshment. Jesus is the true manna that came down from heaven, the real bread. He is the ultimate tabernacle where God meets with his people. Jesus is the great high priest who made the final sacrifice and now intercedes for his people. Jesus is the only one that can give true Sabbath rest. Jesus is the bronze serpent that was put up on a pole so that all that look to him will be saved. Jesus was the scapegoat from the day of atonement that was driven outside the camp for the sins of the people. Jesus is the one that was accused and hung on a tree. Jesus is even the true and better Joshua who will lead us to the ultimate promised land. And that's just skimming the first five books. There are 34 other Old Testament books that you could peruse and find similar things. He fits it like a glove. And that's why Jesus says here, he says, you refuse to come to me. I'm here. Look, he fits it perfectly. It's the proof that we have the true Messiah, that and his miracles and resurrection. And so just to end this, we have an invitation, don't we? The invitation that Jesus has for us this morning, because he said in this passage that these religious leaders refused to come. Like they knew who he was and they didn't want him. And so the, the, the invitation this morning is that Jesus and his father want to invite us into the relationship that they have had forever isn't that cool? So they have this amazing relationship of love and unity and joy and peace. And, and it's exclusive in the sense that, you know, only they're God, right? But it's hospitable in the sense that they're saying, come on in. Come enjoy this relationship we've had from all eternity. And what's so cool about this two guys is you can't mess this up. The reason why Jesus has come and revealed who the Father is, the reason why Jesus has died on the cross, the reason is all because of the love within the Trinity, You benefit from the love they had together. You can't mess this up. You turn from your sin, you trust in him, and then you're invited to experience the true love and unity and joy that they've always had. The true Sabbath rest, right? These religious leaders, they're bickering about some guy carrying a mat. There's no rest in that. Religion can't give you rest. There's a true Sabbath rest that Jesus and his father are offering. It's an ultimate rest where you stop trying to prove that you're good enough and you start enjoying the relationship he's given you. It's a new relationship that will sound a lot like verse 19. Take a look back at it. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. In a way, that's a beautiful picture of discipleship, isn't it? That discipleship is learning to imitate our Father as he's been revealed through his Son. And... And it's, it's, a, it's a good life. Doesn't it sound good? That you would enter into that relationship and, and your whole goal would be to just keep your eyes on Jesus and his Father. Imitate what's there as they live through you. You have passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are so thankful for the news of your son. We're thankful that it's a news that affects this universe, this world, this broken place, Lord. 
we know that you're going to set things right because you've proved it in the resurrection. As we worship here and as we go forth from this place and as we're interacting with friends and neighbors and coworkers and family, Lord, we pray that we would just be tellers of this hope. It's all you're calling us to do is just say what we know, say what we've experienced, to communicate the things that you've shown us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us and shows us the things that you're doing. Just like you love the Son, that you love us. And we pray, Lord, that whatever we have to deal with this week, that we would just realize that we have you. And we have the peace and the joy and the love that you have shed upon us in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash menifee.